2012 at the Continuing the Journey conference in Swanwick, Johnston McMaster of the Irish School of Ecumenics gave this incredible address on the title of Living in Tomorrow's World, Globalisation and Beyond. This recording has been made kindly available to the MOOC community podcast by the organisers of the Continuing the Journey conference 2012. We hope in time to invite Johnston and others to MOOC for a day conference on the issues he raises in this podcast. Well, faith is lived in this world. It is not lived above the world, outside the world, or apart from it. Faith is lived in history, at the heart of social experiences and political realities. We live faith in context. We do theology not as timeless doctrine, but as people who are engaged with historical socio political realities. We bet our lives on the sacred mystery and presence at the heart of those historical and social and political dynamics. We wager our present and our future on the sacred, the sacred transformative mystery being present in the world and the life of the world. And not just in the spaces we call sacred. The spaces, as it were, made holy by prayer and worship. These cathedrals, churches, synagogues, mosques, temples are there as reminders that all space is sacred and sacred presence pulses through the local market square, the urban centre and the nation's social and political life and the world of geopolitics. So in this paper this morning, a presentation, I would like to paint in faith on a large global canvas by engaging with globalization and beyond. This will mean engaging with what is changing in our world experience and worldview with the implications for living faith. We will try to look at the resources we have in faith to build democracy, freedom, pluralism, tolerance and respect. And how faith can move beyond theological certitude and doctrinal hegemony. Betting our lives on the sacred presence and the ultimate mystery may well take us into a new era of interspirituality and positive social ethics and values and virtues. So let's look from the post-era to globalization. We're very fond of post-words these days. We've had a few during the conference already. Post-Christendom, post-nationalism, post-modernism, post-capitalism. We have become hyphenated people. We may not be sure what all this post-era means, but perhaps that is the reason we use all these post-words. We are in some kind of transition from an old world to a new one, from an old consciousness to a new consciousness. We're not the first in history to experience these huge epochal shifts or consciousness transformations. But it is our experience very often, and it is uncomfortable and challenging. It's a shift in worldview, which always means living with change and discontinuity, requiring leaps of faith and thought and imagination. If not, we retreat into religious and political fundamentalism. We may need to critically observe the next American presidential election. Obama may be too much of a postmodernist for the largely fundamentalist Republicans. Well, you might say that's their problem, except they are for a little while yet 
the world's superpower. And Britain still likes to think it has a special relationship. But American, British, Irish, European, people of faith struggle to live as post-Christendom people. When Constantine Christianized the empire in 313 and his successor Theodosius made Christianity the only legal religion of the state and the church was wedded to political power. We had the Christian state and the church was sponsored by state systems and legitimized and blessed the state's armies and wars. We had Christendom And it lasted as a European and later North American phenomenon for almost 1,700 years. The 16th century Protestant reformers didn't really break out of the model, though Luther may have undermined it. The Anabaptists challenged it and witnessed at great cost to the alternative. The French Revolution did huge damage to Christendom and the carnage of the First World War buried Christendom in its rat-infested sea of mud trenches. The carnage in Christian Europe claimed 15 million lives. It was the ultimate death blow to Christendom and modernism and nationalism Even God, a Christendom God, died in the trenches. It wasn't all over because the peace treaties worked out in the leafy suburbs of Paris only created the space for more nations to grow another generation of soldiers and weapons. And the legacy of the First World War was not just the Second World War. The poisonous legacy in some ways still haunts us. The empires of the losers were parceled out by the winners, borders were imposed, new states were created, and we have had the legacies of Burundi, Rwanda, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Darfur, Iraq, Israel, Lebanon, Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, all 20th century stories of civil wars and genocides and killing fields. And Christendom has also died. The Christian state, whatever that was, no longer exists. Churches no longer have or are as close to political power. Faith and politics have been separated. Churches no longer dictate moral legislation. And apart from diminishing practice, church attendance, churches are no longer powerful institutions. They no longer have the monopoly on moral authority, truth claims, or even spirituality. Now, churches complain and may complain of secularism, the right of the Christian spectrum of marginalization, while some may see it, especially in Ireland, as anti-clericalism. The 20th century killing fields also discredited nationalism. Nationalism was only invented at the French Revolution, And as the 19th century progressed, nationalism became increasingly aggressive. By the end of the 19th century, the big powers were spoiling for a war, and they got it in 1914. Aggressive nationalism threatened and then tore Europe apart. It was at the heart of the Irish problem, which was also the British problem, in that crucial decade of Irish-British relations between 1912 in 1922. It was the decade which saw the arming in Ireland of thousands of Protestants, the 1916 Easter Rising, British brutality, sectarian war and violence, and the partition of Ireland in 1921. Europe realized the tragedy of the 20th century in 1948 and set about a conflict transformation project. The European empires collapsed, The British one had gone by the 1960s. Aggressive nationalism has been replaced in Europe by cultural nationalism. We fight it out now in the European soccer championships. (laughs) Political and militarized nationalism are now post. 
which is why the concept of a united Ireland and a united kingdom are no longer the most meaningful. A united Ireland is a pipe dream. The Scots, I think, are too canny to vote for an independent Scotland in 2014. But the discourse will probably lead to changes in the current United Kingdom. Postmodern means we no longer have a meta-narrative, a single overarching dominant cultural narrative or faith narrative. Modernism with its dominant rationality, mono or one truth only, scientific rationalism as the only way to truth, all of this has come to an end. We now know that all knowledge is provisional, it's situated, it's contextualized, and therefore subjective. We have been faced with the objectivist delusion. We can no longer be certain. Absolutes are what we invent. Ideological hegemony is no longer possible. And for faith, this means the end of doctrinal hegemony, the end of faith privilege. Dominance, unique and exclusive truth claims over all other faiths. In a postmodernist world, Christianity is deprivileged. We are now one faith among many. The supreme irony is that we encounter globalization, which is mainly about a great economic meta narrative. Globalization is a meta-narrative of the world's superpower, a sole hegemonic superpower, bent on creating a unipolar world. Globalization is about the control of markets and finance by multinationals, a few global conglomerates connected with political, economic, and military power. Leonardo Boff, the South American theologian, has said, And this political, economic, military power legitimizes a culture based on material goods, favors an impoverished perception of reality, aims at the standardization of the images that are produced, supports the imposition of design customs and the manufacturing of induced tastes. Well, there's more to globalization than that. Other more liberating possibilities, but that may be as negative globalization, the hegemonic truth claim, the sole meta narrative. There was not a little triumphalism in the late 1980s and early 90s when socialism collapsed. Capitalism claimed the moral hegemony. But now uncontrolled capitalism has collapsed through unregulation, greed, and corruption. New economic models are needed. We have arrived in the post-capitalist world through, though the financial institutions like the churches with post-Christendom appear to be fighting to preserve the status quo instead of responding creatively to a new time. The foundational documents of the Jewish and Christian faiths have an experiential paradigm. It's called exile. A 6th century BCE experience of trauma and collapse and dislocation of exile in Babylon. It produced, among other things, the raw, brutal, angry lament of lamentations. But that experience of a collapsed world, a post-everything world, also produced the most amazing creativity among exiles. It was not only a liberating creativity that redacted and edited and shaped the Hebrew Bible as we have it today. It was about the creativity of ideas, of future vision, of new identity, of new purpose. The paradigm of exile is at the heart of the Hebrew Bible. And it is the prophetic writings of that era that are the most quoted in the Christian Gospels. In our post-world, where even the globalization model has collapsed, there is a Judeo-Christian paradigm of creative response with new ideas and vision. Two words might help. They are glocalization and interdependence. 
Localization is a relatively new word, new idea, I suppose, for a new time. Information technology, greater communications, and travel have now placed us in a global village. We are shaped by a larger, yet at the same time, shrinking context. Our politics are now geopolitics. Our social home and environment is planetary. Our food choices are global. And yet, globalization is about holding the local and the global together. The global is in the local, and the local is in the global. This is true of foods and cultures and faiths. We're having to learn to live not with one narrative, but many narratives, many stories, many cultures. We are immersed in the local global context and that means that interdependency is a new experience. In the 1950s and 60s when empires were collapsing and colonial powers were crumbling, the key word was independence. African countries were looking for independence and many got their independence within our lifetimes. But at the beginning of the 21st century, the key word is inter. Dependence, because that is now the world we live in, perhaps a post-imperialist or post-colonial world. Absolute state sovereignty, political or economic, is no longer possible in a globalised world. That's the problem, I think, for the Scottish National Party, to take an example. The independence language of 50, 40, 50 years ago is now inadequate, if not obsolete, And Scottish people need to come to terms with interdependence, as do we all. And the nationalistic purists in Ireland complain about the Republic's loss of economic sovereignty. And the economic collapse in Ireland was because of a moral collapse in relation to economics. But bailouts are also about the reality of pooled sovereignty. Living in an interdependent world... The Western nations still have a huge challenge to extend economic interdependency to the poorest and debt-laden countries of the world. Negative globalization keeps them poor, in debt, and dependent. And this is also the challenge to build democracy, better described perhaps as participative democracy. So let me turn to building democracy and pluralism and tolerance. We find ourselves in another post-world, a post-Cold War world, after 1989, when velvet revolutions occurred in Eastern and Central Europe. It was symbolized in a very powerful way in the bringing down of the Berlin Wall. Democracy and freedom became the new experiences and longings of the Eastern and Central European peoples. Even Albania became democratic. The Soviet empire collapsed and we got used to speaking of glasnost and perestroika, openness and restructuring. The evil system of apartheid collapsed in South Africa and Nelson Mandela emerged from Robben Island and along with moral heroes like Desmond Tutu to build a new rainbow nation. And what we're now calling the Arab Spring Some see as the Arab equivalent of what happened in Europe in 1989. Syria is still obdurate. And there is still a struggle for democracy in some other Arab countries, Bahrain. But the borders of these countries were artificially created, mainly by the British and the French after the First World War. And the Arab-Muslim problem is a colonial creation and legacy. And further east, Burma has taken steps towards democratization with the election of Aung San Suu Kyi and others to the Burmese parliament. It is now possible that another military dictatorship will give way to participative democracy and freedom. Now, it's not that democracy is the perfect political system In a world where there are human flaws and fault lines, no political system ever is the last word. But to date, it's the best we know. 
Winston Churchill once said that democracy is the worst of all possible systems except for all the others. Norman Davis, a British historian of Europe, has said that the democratic ideal at least promotes all the virtues, from freedom, justice, and equality, to the rule of law, the respect for human rights, and the promotion of political pluralism and of civic society. And alongside the human flaw is the human spirit, with an almost universal abhorrence of tyranny and totalitarianism. Popular sovereignty can be traced back to classical Greece in the 6th century BCE, and our European expression of democracy can be traced also to the popular Viking assemblies. And there are precedents in Novgorod, Hungary, and Poland. In English experience, the glorious revolution of 1688-89 is significant. Now, it may have been neither glorious nor revolutionary. It was an invasion of England by a Dutch prince, to save the political and religious establishment. He turned up later in Ireland, and the rest is history. It became the myth in Ireland of a Protestant triumph with a distorted and often violent legacy that comes right down to the present. But it did produce what has become called the English ideology, which is the absolute sovereignty of Parliament. Absolute totalitarian power, if you like, was transferred from the monarch to the elected parliament. Now, democracy is understood a little differently, for example, in the Republic of Ireland and some other European countries where it lies not in the sovereignty of parliament, but in the sovereignty of the people. The Irish constitution cannot be changed by parliament, but only through referendum by the people. So we have our different nuanced democracies but they are liberal democracies, and there are particular values and virtues at the heart of them. Freedom is one such core value. Dictatorship, totalitarianism, despotism, even the tyranny of the majority, which is what we had in Northern Ireland from partition in 1921 to the abolition of the Northern Ireland Parliament by the Heath government in 1972, all of those are unacceptable to the democratic spirit. Systems of political and social control keep people down, but only for a while. The human spirit longs for bends towards freedom. Repression, control, discrimination, invasive political dominance eventually gives way to the human quest for freedom. And the same holds for oppressive religion. Participative democracy and freedom, especially freedom of thought, choice, and spirit, all lead to pluralism. Now, we cannot have democracy without the many and the wide diversity. Democracy is living with cultural, political, ethnic, religious, and ideological diversity and pluralism. Some may not like it, but it is the price and the freedom of democracy. We may prefer homogeneity. Some may even prefer the tyranny of the majority because it's more comfortable or controlling or it's a model of power, power over. And there are elements of Christianity and the church struggling with this. It is why some people of faith are ambivalent about human rights and equality or even opposed to human rights and equality. The church is one voice among many, one faith among many, one truth claim among many. It means, historically, a deprivileged role. But some complain of marginalization, the silencing of the faith witness. But is it? As well as freedom and pluralism, democracy requires tolerance or respect. We may worry about tolerance, become a weak word, in our English language, suggesting live and let live and an indifference may be to values and beliefs. Well, there are two kinds of tolerance. There is passive tolerance. I accept you because I can't do anything about it. I am ambivalent about you or I might even attribute much value to you. There is a tolerance of indifference. 
or the unwillingness to confront or challenge, or it is a complacent convenience. I don't have to come to terms with you. On the other hand, there is active tolerance. The attitude of one who positively co-lives with the other because one respects the other and accepts the multifaceted richness of reality. Through our contact, encounter, and exchange, there is enrichment. There is also the meaning of the Turkish word for tolerance, which I have learnt from encounter and dialogue with Turkish Muslim friends. In Turkish, tolerance means seeing the good in the other. There are limits to tolerance, not because of intolerance, but from the right to guarantee those differences and the co-living between these differences. Tolerance without limits becomes intolerance. We cannot be tolerant in the face of suffering or humiliation of the other. We cannot tolerate the violation of another's human rights or dignity. We cannot tolerate the systematic destruction of the environment. There are times when we cannot be tolerant of the intolerant, especially when intolerance means crimes and losses to others. Tolerance, like freedom, needs the law to impose limits, law to protect people from intolerance. We ought not to tolerate sectarianism, racism, sexism, homophobia, and the law needs to legislate for equality and human rights. Let me turn finally to nurturing faith beyond belief. We live in a world of post-Christendom, post-nationalism, post-modernism, and post-capitalism, and we'll soon be post-conference. <laughs> we are challenged by all of these and by the homogeneous world of economic globalization to move beyond that world to a more positive glocalization and interdependence. This is about holding the local and the global together in a more interdependent world, holding together in a creative way the particular and the universal. It is about building within the local and the global participative democracy with its prerequisite values of freedom and pluralism and positive tolerance. So what does it mean to live in this world with faith, and what does this world mean for faith? We have already mentioned the Hebrew paradigm of exile, the unsettling, even traumatic experience of dislocation and displacement, strangeness, alienation, and yet experience that when named became enormously creative. The pain of exile led to a new vision of God and a new sense of identity and purpose. It was an end, but became a new beginning. Endings always have the potential for new beginnings. Despite the rise and attraction of religious fundamentalism, we've got to a stage in religious history as well as other histories of the end of, of certitude. We are living through the end of certitude and of doctrinal hegemony. The old religious certitudes and moral certitudes are going or have gone. Postmodernism is teaching us that all knowledge is provisional because it is shaped by our social context and by our human finitude, even when that is collective rather than individualistic. We're not the first people to realize this. Aristotle was saying this, the provisionality of all knowledge, centuries before the common era began. And this is true of every truth claim we make, or our churches or our institutions make. Our knowledge of God is provisional and shaped by our social context. We speak of divine revelation. But every articulation and expression of divine revelation is always a human construct in very human language. Pope John XXIII said something, I think, profound at the beginning of Vatican II over 50 years ago. He said, the truth is one thing. Our formulations of the truth are something other.
The truth and our formulations of it can never be equated. And doctrine consists of the formulations of human beings and human institutions. And when we have said all we have to say about the Holy Spirit, our doctrinal formulations are always human constructs and they are fallible. Now, the response to this is often fundamentalism. Fundamentalism at the beginning of the 20th century was driven by a fear of modernism and scientific rationalism. People couldn't cope with the world as it was then. And paradoxically and smartly, it has to be said, the fundamentalists used the modernist and scientific rationalist approach to define dogma and doctrine. It was done with rigidity and precision, which was also literalist. The fundamentals were the absolutes of faith expressed in propositions. Now, a century on, modernism is being replaced by postmodernism, whatever exactly that means. There is no, there's no certitude about it. Fear drives the late 20th century and maybe early 21st century fundamentalism across the different religions, not just as religious, but also very often as political fundamentalism. It is still literalistic in its reading of sacred texts and rigid in its doctrinal absolutes and in some cases it is aggressive and militant and even militaristic. Terrorism is often the consequence of political and religious fundamentalism. Even when not engaging in terrorism, fundamentalism rooted in fear and often conspiracy theories is opposed to democracy, freedom, pluralism, and positive tolerance. But faith need not be fearful, nor develop a victim mentality that the world is against us and we are being marginalized and even silenced. The end of certitude and doctrinal hegemony does not mean the end of faith. It can mean the practice of perhaps more authentic faith. It can mean faith rather than belief. And there is a world of difference. Much of our Western theology has been built on an exaggerated Paulinism. It's the Paul was the founder of Christianity view and Paul as a systematic theologian. Paul, not Jesus, has become the basis of our formulations of theology and Paul's letter to the Romans in particular has become the compendium of doctrinal theology thanks in the modern era to Martin Luther or maybe it was the Lutheranism that followed him which was more Lutheran than Luther himself. But Augustine earlier provided an earlier precedent for faith as intellectual assent to doctrines or beliefs. Faith was ticking a set of theological boxes, most of which it was believed rested on the authority of Paul and Paul's affirmation that we walk by faith, not by sight, got lost in our Western approach to faith as intellectual assent. And fundamentalists in the Christian tradition didn't hear Paul either. Faith, not sight, because seeing is knowing and knowing is certitude, and knowing absolutely is having absolute certitude, and all of that is not faith. Faith is not seeing, not knowing. It is, as the letter to the Hebrews put it, being like Abraham and Sarah, setting out on a journey and not knowing where they were going. Faith is a journey without maps, Without absolutes and certitudes, faith is trusting a sacred presence, a God who can never be fully known or maybe even known. The end of doctrinal hegemony also means the end of an absolute, unique and exclusive Christian truth claim. Hegemony has to do with domination and Western Christianity has often been, especially in its Christendom mode, a domination system. At the Edinburgh Missionary Conference of 1910, the founding event of the modern ecumenical movement. The great slogan in 1910 was, the world for Christ in this century. 
1910, those gathered in Edinburgh were white imperialists doing imperialist theology and imperialist evangelism. The world would be Christian by the end of the 20th century. There was only one truth claim, one faith. All others were there for conversion to that one faith. And Edinburgh in 1910, that was that one faith was exclusively Protestant. But then, in 1910, democracy was fledgling. Pluralism and diversity were not buzzwords. Christianity did not conquer the world in the 20th century. The hoped-for Christian century, in fact, became the bloodiest in recorded human history. A century dominated by atrocity rather than theology. And today, Christians are almost one-third of the global population. So not only has Christendom gone, but Christian hegemony with its absolute and exclusive truth claims has also gone. And perhaps that was also part of the Eurocentrism that dominated the world since 1492. But this is not just a new reality for Christianity. All forms of religious hegemony have no place in a democratic, pluralistic world, nor is there a hegemonic place for secular humanism or the new atheism or Islam or Hinduism. Pluralism means the freedom for all to be present and the equal right for all to be heard and to voice their faith and their value system. Faith, then, is openness to the unknowing. Faith is openness to the mystery of the sacred, to the God who is beyond knowing and naming. Faith is betting one's life that sacred mystery is at the heart of all life and being. It is also a wager that a purposeful presence is within us and around us. It is a journey into the deep mystery of the universe and the energy at the heart of all life. Faith is openness to the mystery of God and to God's future. It is the journey into the unknown, again betting one's life and living that the heartbeat of life is hospitable and just and loving, that life tends towards hospitality, embrace and justice and loving, that the future of the human community along with the environmental community, is in hospitality and embrace and justice and love. And without being imperialistic or triumphalist, which Christendom was for the best part of 1,700 years, Christians can witness to their faith as seen by them in the Jesus story. Our clue to God, the sacred, and our clue to the unknowingness of God is Jesus. And we can even state that as being a unique part of our faith experience without needing to claim an absolute uniqueness, an exclusive uniqueness. Paul took to poetry because as a good Jew, he knew that poetry and metaphor are the only ways we have to make sense of sacred mystery. To the Philippians, he wrote of a self-emptying God who, who let go of power over, who did not need power as domination, who was in contrast to the power over or imperialism of the Roman emperor. When Paul reflected on his encounter with Jesus, he realized that imperialistic faith and triumphalist faith, absolute faith that absolutely excludes, was not, in fact, faith. It was anti-God, or it was a belief system that shaped God in a mere human image. Now, whatever we mean by God, and the essence of God is always beyond us, it is faith in a God beyond hegemony, a God beyond certitudes and absolutes, beyond power as domination, a God who is not Pharaoh or Caesar, to use perhaps more biblical imagery. Of course we articulate theology and we attempt to express faith in doctrines and formulations. But these are secondary. 
And they're always provisional and they're penultimate. Faith is not a system of doctrine or theological formulation or even in the Bible as text itself. Faith is the wager that the mystery and energy at the heart of things is hospitable and welcoming and just and loving. Faith is not looking back as an end in itself, but looking forward actively to the future that belongs to the sacred mystery we call God. Faith is living in tomorrow's world, not just beyond certitude and hegemony, but also beyond globalization to interdependent local Faith is living with questions, living with tensions, living with dispute, living with diversity. It is even living, even living with relativization and the relativization of all power and politics because faith is living with the penultimate rather than the ultimate. In a global and public context, faith takes us down two experiential routes. It launches us into the world of interspirituality. If there is no hegemony and no ultimate or absolute truth claims and no place for religious imperialism, then we are in the world with the other. And the other is many. One world with many faiths. It may even be that the sacred mystery luring and wooing us forward and onward into the heart of the sacred mystery has given us one world and many faiths. Now, unless God conforms to our doctrinal hegemony, our imperialistic dogmas, be they Christian, Muslim, Hindu, or atheist, in which case the mystery is no longer mystery, then we are together in one world. Interdependence and partnership become key and democratic tolerance means we share a mutual enrichment. And maybe it's only in that mutual interdependent sharing and enrichment that we experience authentic transcendence, that we encounter sacred mystery. Maybe it's only in the other and with each other that we encounter the other. Spirituality has to do with the deepest values. Our spirituality is in our values, the values that shape our being, our attitudes, and our practice. Spirituality is the inner ethos of who we are and what our organizations and our institutions are. In a shared world of many faiths, interspirituality is in the sharing of values and virtues. It is not that all faiths are the same. Our rituals and symbols and belief systems differ, and the differences are enriching. Interspirituality is maintaining the dignity and the integrity of difference, freely recognizing that we speak with different accents. And yet, behind the differences and the accents, there is the shared grammar of values and virtues. If the Turkish word for tolerance means seeing the good in the other, then it is not just the interpersonal other, but also the religious other. It is seeing the good and the best, the real values at the heart of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Judaism, and Christianity. Interspirituality is recognizing and connecting with the hospitality, the welcome, the compassion, the social justice and love that are the shared values and the heartbeat of many faiths and finding ways of living together and with and for each other within the whole community of love. Interspirituality is also about nurturing ourselves in relation to the other in hospitality, welcome, compassion, social justice, and love. Now, in an era of globalization, we cannot afford not to nurture, I think, interspirituality. At the end of the first century, the last book in the Christian Testament posed a challenging question for the seven churches of Asia Minor, living as they were in the shadow of the Roman Empire, the first century globalization. What is the Spirit saying to the churches? 
And perhaps the question needs reframed at the beginning of the 21st century. Admittedly, reframing it, as I am now in a Christian framework, but breaking out beyond those boundaries. What is the Spirit saying to the world's religions? In a more democratic, interdependent, pluralist world, what deep wooing of spirit, of inner depth, is going on in our contemporary world? Interspirituality also leads us to social ethics because the differently accented and shared values are ethics in practice. And ethics in a relational world are social ethics. This is about lifestyle and life praxis. It is faith as programmatic, if you like, a program for living. It's about living faith in the global and in the global public square. Now, faith is neither otherworldly or private. It is openness to a public future and therefore engages us with the issues of poverty and violence, war, peace, economics, politics, sexism, racism, homophobia, genetics, the environment. Faith has no opt-out clauses, no no-go areas. It is the public witness and action to hospitality, embrace social justice, and tough love. So we end with another biblical paradigm. Let me suggest that the Bible perhaps is a book made for a post-Christendom, post-modernist world. What Walter Brueggemann has said of the Hebrew Bible is also applicable to the Christian Testament. It is a book of testimony, dispute, advocacy. Now, whether ancient Israel or the early Jesus movement, these minority peoples, minority faith communities, had no political power in a globalized world. Set as they were in a world of geopolitics, ancient Israel and the Jesus movement always lived in the shadow of empires, great hegemonic powers of domination and oppression, political, military, economic, and religious. And from Genesis to Revelation, their challenge and struggle was how to live faithfully, with ethical integrity, in a world where the superpower, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, or Rome, defined ultimate reality and the absolute imperialistic values. Faith was a struggle to live faithfully, to live ethically, to live as a subversive protest and as an alternative vision of social life. That faith community was always a minority voice, without political power, without state backing or protection. The faith community was one voice among many, often in dispute, with its globalized world, and often in dispute within itself. There were always those who wanted to imitate the power over systems, to be like the Pharaoh or like the Caesar, to dominate, impose, and control. That is the point of, and it's a tragedy, of the Solomon story in the Hebrew Bible. And the great temptation of the friends of Jesus who wanted, you remember, a top place. A dominant place of power. Just like the Gentiles. Just like the empire. And so one of a number of disputes at the heart of the Bible, and there are many, one of the disputes at the heart of the Bible is the dispute around violence. Our foundational texts are full of violence, We read from the most violent texts in literature because because that is the problem that faith is trying to deal with. It's a problem with empires, with all domination systems, including religious ones. 
the minority faith communities of ancient Israel and the Jesus movement put their subversive voice and alternative vision out there. It is their testimony or their witness in a world of values and ideologies in dispute. It is one voice among many, maybe often in dispute with hegemonic claims, their public advocacy of alternative values and social vision, and the only power they have is moral force. The power of persuasion, never physical or even psychological force. It is testimony, dispute, advocacy in a democratic, pluralistic society. The faith voice has the right with every other voice to be heard. And the testimony, dispute, and advocacy is public. In the public square is a public testimony, dispute, and advocacy that has no need for triumphalism to be an imperialistic, exclusive, absolute or fundamentalist. Faith does need integrity. And faith with integrity can, with appropriate confidence, engage with a post-world. Indeed, we can even thrive in a post-world. Brueggemann puts two sides of the one coin that reflects the world of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Testament, but in an uncanny way also reflects our post-Christendom, post-modern, democratic, pluralist, localized, interdependent world. He says the disestablishment, the disestablishment of a triumphalist church in the West can hardly be contested. In the place of a consensus authority, We have within the church an amazing pluralism that is matched outside the church by vigorous competing religious claims and by a profound secularization of culture. It is possible that the testimony of Israel is to be seen, even in our own time, not as the dominant meta-narrative that must give order and coherence across the full horizon of social reality, but as a subversive protest and as an alternative act of vision that invites criticism and transformation. Well, maybe there's no better time to mind the gaps and continue the journey. Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net. Mm-hmm.